Please open your Bibles, at least very briefly at the beginning this morning, to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. We've begun a study of the Ten Commandments oh, quite some time ago, and we've come this morning to our third and final study of the next to the last of the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment. I'm going to read it, and then we'll do a very brief review, and then we'll begin our study this morning. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, in our first message, we answered some basic questions raised by the Ninth Commandment. What is a witness? What does it mean to bear witness? That a witness is ordinarily a, a, a used of a person or an object that provides testimony. More specifically, a witness is someone who testifies to, to, to the truth of Jesus Christ and His Gospel. In that sense, we're all witnesses all the time. And the second question, what does it mean to bear false witness? Well, a false witness is a person who deliberately gives false testimony. He knowingly tells things that aren't true. And then we answered the question, who is my neighbor against whom I must not bear false witness? Well, first of all, Christian brethren are our neighbors. Spiritually speaking, they are our closest neighbors. But furthermore, we see from this text that all men, non-Christians, as well as Christians, are our neighbors. So we're to bear truth regarding all men. <clears throat> and then we saw two essential concerns presumed in the Ninth Commandment. First, the Ninth Commandment requires of us an unqualified, thoroughgoing commitment to truth in our thinking, in our speaking, and in our actions. And secondly, we're to understand our duty to be committed to complete honesty and integrity. The Ninth Commandment requires us to be truthful with and to seek the welfare of our neighbor. It's not just a negative command. Not only are we not to bear false witness against our neighbor, we're to do everything we can to promote his welfare. And then we came to consider the wide practical implications of the Ninth Commandment using the Westminster Larger Catechism as our guide. And we looked at the duties required by the Ninth Commandment. And then we, this morning, come to consider the sins forbidden by the Ninth Commandment. And if you happen to have a larger catechism in your lap or the handout, that I gave, you will see that our Puritan forefathers were very astute doctors of the soul. They saw the implications and wide application of prohibitions against sins in very detailed ways. <clears throat> what are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? We're not going to look at all of them today, but let me just read it. Read the answer. Answer. The sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment are all prejudi prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors. That's, his, that's the big picture there. As well as our own, especially in public 
judicature, in other words, before a court, but we know that it's wider than telling the truth before a court of law. Giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous, and the righteous according to the work of the wicked. Forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calleth either for a reproof from ourselves or complaint to others. Speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously uh, to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning, or in doubtful and equivocal expressions, to the prejudice of truth or justice, speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring, misconstructing, or we'd say misconstruing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession, unnecessary discovering of infirmities, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defense, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, Scornful contempt, fond admiration, breach of lawful promises, neglecting such things as are of good report, and practicing or not avoiding ourselves or hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. Well, this morning we're not going to consider all of those. I'm just going to look at some of them this morning. So we're just going to be doing a sampling and not a detailed exposition of these various violations of the Ninth Commandment. We must necessarily sacrifice thoroughness for the sake of time and propriety. And then we'll come to some concluding applications. So we're looking at the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment, a selective view and the first is passing unjust sentence, calling evil good, and good evil. <clears throat> passing unjust sentence, calling evil good, and good evil, brethren, happens not just in law courts. It happens in our daily lives as we interact with other people. It happens in our hearts and with our tongues when we subvert justice and we revert, reverse right and wrong. Which one of us can honestly say, I've never done this? We've known the right and done the wrong. Or we've known what was true and we've told what was false. 
passing unjust sentence, calling evil good or good evil. Furthermore, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause. In other words, not speaking up when you must speak up, speaking righteousness into the situation. And holding our peace when iniquity calleth for either a reproof from ourselves or complaint to others. And here we have an example of failure here. When reproof should have been given and it wasn't given in King David. David was a righteous man, worthy of our imitation in many ways. But where David failed most obviously was as a father. Now he had lots of children, and having lots of children presents all kinds of opportunities to fail on the left and on the right. And we read at the beginning of First Kings chapter 1 and verse 6, we read these words, And his father, speaking of David, had never crossed him, speaking of Adonijah, at any time by asking, Why have you done so? Well, Adonijah is is seeking to take over the throne, to, de- to depose Solomon. Solomon is just being seated upon the throne. Well, it says that he was a very handsome man, born after Absalom. David had some very handsome sons. He had gorgeous wives, and he was a handsome man. And sometimes parents, because their, ch- their children look good, or they're good at a lot of things, they'll pass by the reproofs that they owe them. Well, David held his peace, Instead of reproving his son, we see this also in Eli. He didn't reprove his sons when he knew what was going on in their lives, but he just let it slide. I don't know if he thought boys will be boys or they'll grow out of this. But when he did reprove them, it was very slight. It was a little tap on the thick diaper, if at all, and never really dealt with them. When they were older, well, the twig had got bent along the way, and he didn't reprove them when they got older. That's a violation of the Ninth Commandment. Leviticus 19 and verse 17 gives us this general principle. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor. We have a responsibility to reprove. We have an obligation when we see something that needs to be corrected to graciously address that. But shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not follow him in his sin and do as he does, and you shall not incur sin because of him by not reproving when he needs to be addressed. Brethren, we are not free to remain silent when truth we need we know needs to be told. We may think remaining quiet shows love when in fact it may conceal hatred. We are to speak the truth in love. Fact is, we may share in another's sin by our silence. It may be guilty silence. We may be, uh, our silence may be complicity. We haven't said anything when we should have said something. Sometimes it is our duty to bring a matter before proper authority. This we should do with a humble attitude. We shouldn't be looking to tell on somebody to get them in trouble. For instance, you children, if you see your brother or your sister doing something that mom and dad told them not to do, 
For instance, if they're playing with matches, you need to go talk to mom and dad right now. That's not being a tattletale. That's showing that you love your brother and your sister and your mom and your dad and you want to continue to live in the house that you're living in. You don't want it to burn down. So going to your mom and dad, that's not being a tattletale. Now, if you're a child and you need to tell something about your brother or sister that they're doing wrong, especially if you went to them and told them not to do it and they keep doing it, you have to check your own spirit. When you go talk to mom and dad, are you just ratting on them to get them in trouble? Well, we, we've all done that before, haven't we? Trying to make ourselves look good at the expense of making our brother or sister look bad. So it may be best to tell your brother or sister and then inform your parents, I have to tell mom and dad. Or in a situation where an employee witnesses another stealing, a reproof may be sufficient if the stolen item is returned. Otherwise, he needs to inform the boss. Again, we're to speak the truth in love. We must not hate our neighbor as demonstrated by our silence toward him. Furthermore, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning, making it mean something that it really doesn't, twisting things, putting a spin on things, or in doubtful or equivocal expressions, making one word mean something that it doesn't mean, to the prejudice of the truth or justice. Brethren, we need wisdom from God. If we're going to speak truth in a timely way and to a right end, we must speak with a right spirit, not being spiteful, but honestly telling all the truth and only the truth without embellishment, without building it up, making it larger than it really is. Not only not telling what needs to be told, but by telling things that may be true, but you exaggerated to the point where it's false. We should know the truth before we speak. We should speak simply, we should speak plainly. We should refuse to give in to the temptation to slant the facts in our favor if we have a party in the situation. How good we are at, at doing that. We're all spin doctors, aren't we? Furthermore, flattery, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others. Let's look at flattery, vain boast or vainglorious boasting. That's forbidden in the Bible. It's forbidden in the, the Proverbs. Jude speaks of it in verse 16. Of those who flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Flattery. Flattery is said to be like soap. It's 90% lie. But we're all suckers for flattery. Flattery is... Nothing but sugar-coated lies, and we have to all admit that we have a sweet tooth, don't we? <clears throat> we like to hear people tell things that we know are not as large as, as they present them to be about us. We just love to be 
fond over. Well, brethren, the flatterer is a thief who uses fawning words to get something. And brethren, if we have a problem with pride especially, we may easily fall into the flatterer's trap. We want to be built up. And when people say things aren't true about us, well, that's all right. It makes me look better than I really am. Or we may use flattery ourselves to get our own way. Proud people are easily overcome by flattery because they have too high of an estimation of themselves and they love to just be patted on the back with comfortable lies. How we think about ourselves impacts how we speak. Notice further on to this point, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly or too lowly of ourselves or others. Paul makes this very plain in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, sober judgment, a proper evaluation of our gifts and our graces, our defects and deficiencies, to be honest with ourselves about ourselves. Verse 16, do not be haughty in mind. Do not be wise in your own estimation. How large we like to think ourselves to be, oftentimes against how small we think others are. Brethren, we, th we bear false witness when we think either too highly or too lowly of ourselves or others. And you know, we can be speaking ill of ourselves at times when it's really just backhanded pride. We try to make ourselves look lowly to make ourselves look good. Oh, I'm just not good at this and I'm not, not good at that. Oh, woe is me. And you're just waiting for somebody to say, no, no, let me tell you about yourself. Living according to the truth means that we must neither demean nor fawn over ourselves or others. We must be honest with ourselves. We must be honest with other people. And by the same token, we must not make fun of people's looks or their physical or mental limitations. I don't know how many of you are like what I was, an unconverted young person. We would make fun of people that might have a speech impediment or walk with a limp or have some kind of bodily defect. Just plain meanness. Handicapped persons should be objects, objects of compassion, not of criticism. Yet we must not demean the gifts that God has given us, but use them for His glory. That's not being proud, that's being humble. What do I have that I have not received? Lord, let me use what you've given me for your glory, for the advancement, the welfare, the happiness of other people. Let me stand out of the way that you might get all the glory. 
Brethren, how our thinking and speaking in these ways reminds us of our need for a Savior. Our lofty view of ourselves is well pictured by the Pharisee preening and praising himself in the temple. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or like that guy over there in that other pew. No, I've got all of these things to offer you and you're bettered by my breathing your air. How our pride keeps us from seeing our sin and of our need for a Savior, the need of the forgiving grace of God in Jesus Christ. And until God opens our eyes to see our unsufferable pride, we suffer the fatal delusion that we are too good to need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. How about aggravating smaller faults? The Ninth Commandment forbids us from exaggerating the seriousness of others' sins and faults. And brethren, is it not true that we are often guilty of minimizing our own faults and sins while exaggerating those of others? <clears throat> We see ours as so small. We see theirs as so large. Jesus addressed this. He warns us against hypocritical judging the comparatively speck-sized sins of others while excusing our own log-sized sins. Jesus says, this person may have a speck, but you got a log in your eye. Can you see around that thing to pick the speck out of his eye? Boy, are we good inspectors that way. We're blind to our blindness, and we see their sins as larger than life. I'm not diminishing their sins, but I'm speaking of our own hypocrisy in these things. Jesus says, get that log out of your eye first. Then you can see clearly enough to be very adroit and graciously picking the speck out of your brother's eye. But you got this big thing. You can't see where you're going. Been there. Done that. Brethren, if we judged our own sins rightly, we wouldn't be so quick to exaggerate the sins of others. Furthermore, hiding, excusing, or extenuating sins when called to a free confession. How skillful we are at avoiding confessing the guilt of our sins. We're ready to confess the guilt of other people's sins, but we're not so quick to point the finger at ourselves. We're, we're expert at dodging the bullet and of justifying ourselves. Notice hiding, excusing, extenuating sins that are when they call for a free confession. We hide our sin. We hide our sin in a couple of ways, at least, by attempting to hide from God. Remember Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the cool of the day. Well, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they, they didn't seek out God. God sought them out. They sought to hide from God. And by attempting to fool God by our good works, we know better than we think God knows about us. And we try to hide our sin behind the fig leaves of our good works. 
that we, we believe are going to hide those sins from God. God won't see it. I'll do this. I'll do that. He won't be the wiser. So we hide our sin. Try to hide it from God. Try to fool God with good works. We excuse our sin. How do we excuse our sin? We excuse our sin through self-righteousness. Proverbs 30 and verse 12. There is a kind, or maybe your Bible reads generation. There's a generation who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. He's pure in his own eyes. I don't have any sin. I'm a good person. Just ask me and I'll tell you. We excuse our sin by denying personal responsibility and sometimes by outright lies. You remember Genesis 4 and verse 9, The Lord said to Cain, Abel's blood is crying to him from the ground. Where is Abel, your brother? Very clear, plain question to Cain about his brother Abel. Where is he? And he said, I do not know. That's a plain, bald face, outright lie. So he denies, he, he outright lie, and then he denies personal responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it my turn to watch him today? I've got other things to do. I, I can't be watching over and taking care of my brother all the time. You know, we can answer God with very flip, crass answers like that. But we might not do it with our lips, we can do it in our hearts. 2 Kings 5, verse 25. And he went in and stood before his master, let's see, Gehazi, after he had taken some things, he had lied to get, these, get clothes and goods. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Oh, what are these changes of clothes? What are these riches that you have? Plain lie. Thirdly, we excuse our sin by denying that what we have done is evil. Proverbs 30 and verse 20 there is the way of an adulterous woman. So what's the way of an adulterous woman? How would you know her? She eats and wipes her mouth. In other words, she commits her sins in a, in a brazen sort of way and says, I have done no wrong. What are you talking about? Caught red-handed. It's like Ananias is a fire. Caught red-handed. And the light of the Holy Spirit. Well, let us not think that we haven't done the same things ourselves. Fourthly, we excuse our sin by shifting our blame to others. Boy, we see this early on in the Bible, don't we? Genesis 3, verses 11 and 12. And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He's not asking that question because he didn't have the answer. He's trying to elicit confession. 
And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And notice that he's not just blaming the woman. The woman you gave me, she's the one that tempted me to do this. Every time we blame somebody else, we're ultimately blaming God. He blamed Eve and he blamed God. The Eve. It's the serpent who tempted me. Only the serpent didn't lie here because he knew that God had him dead to rights. They should have known that too. Oh, blame shifters. I remember a pastor saying it stuck with me. Blame shifters don't go to heaven. Why don't they go to heaven? Because they don't take their own blame upon themselves and confess their sins and forsake it. They're always pointing to somebody else and justifying themselves. If we're blame shifters, we're going to die in our sins. It's my mom. It's my dad. They, it's my life. In my home. There's all kinds of excuses. But the buck never stops here, you see. Thirdly, we extenuate. We extenuate. We attempt to lessen the guilt of our sin. We can do this in a couple ways anyway. First of all, we may seek to lessen our guilt by appealing to, the over, to overwhelming peer pressure. I just couldn't help myself. We see this in Aaron. Exodus 32, verses 22 through 24. Moses comes down from the from the mountain, the holy mountain, he sees the melee that's going on, all the what, wicked and wild idolatry that's taking place. And Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn, speaking to Moses. You know the people yourself, that they're prone to evil. You didn't just learn this, Moses. You've seen this all the way up to this point. For they said to me, Aaron said to Moses, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. These people are wild on their own. I couldn't help myself. I was drawn into this. Furthermore, notice what we're commanded not to do. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil. We are warned of that. We can't say we couldn't help ourselves. We couldn't say, I was just drawn along inexorably. I was carried away. I couldn't stop. Furthermore, we may lessen, seek to lessen the guilt of our sin by inventing outrageous excuses. And so Aaron did. This is a righteous man that in, invented this excuse. And I said to them, Exodus 23:24, Whoever has any gold, let him tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses, or Aaron, you didn't have any hand in that at all? You just took a handful of gold, threw it in the fire, and out of the fire walks this calf. Right? That's what happened? Well, that's the spin that Aaron put on it. Outrageous excuses. 
Brethren, Solomon is right. God made man upright and he sought out many devices. Sin is so very creative. Understand that God sees through all our smoke screens, all our excuses, all our dodges. Understand that he will not forgive those who deny or explain away their sin, but he readily shows abundant compassion upon all who readily confess and forsake their sin. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. We're pulling the wool over our own eyes. And the truth is not in us. We're living a lie. If we confess our sins, homologeo, to say the same thing that God says about them. It's iniquity. It's wickedness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this cleansing from all unrighteousness, this forgiving of our sins, is conditioned upon our confession of our sins. I love what we read in Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions, he who hides it, tries to keep it from the view of others. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. We have two promises here. One's a warning. We conceal our, our transgressions. We won't prosper. Not in the way of true prosperity. Oh, it might look good for a while. It might increase our bank account for a while. But it's going to come back to haunt us later. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Furthermore, evil suspicion. Evil suspicion. Just always have an evil eye towards somebody. You're always suspecting them. Rather than understand that the Ninth Commandment does not forbid legitimate suspicion, which is supported by reasonable evidence, we're not to be naive. No, we're to use sound judgment. Rather, it prohibits improper suspicion that may arise from having an evil eye or an eager readiness to believe something bad about someone. You hear anything bad about someone? Oh, yeah, it's got to be true. I, this guy is, well, if you knew him like I did, you'd believe anything anyone said about him. One man has written, because of our sinful hearts, we are too ready to put the worst interpretation on other people's conduct when perhaps the actual facts of the matter could be explained in a more charitable way. Ooh, that stung when I read that. That went deep to the heart. Paul says, love does not act unbecomingly. Brethren, this description of, of love that does not act unbecomingly, but thinks the best unless, until it, the worst is proven. This presumes the golden rule. Love assumes the best of others until we have sound reason to believe otherwise by putting the best construction on doubtful things until we learn differently. I seem to continually be needing to learn this again and again. How many times have we sinned in this way only to have our suspicions proven wrong? 
envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any. Mr. Voss, again, he sees the heart malignancy here of envying or grieving at the deserved credit of someone. This is when he says, we are highly displeased when another receives praise, honor, or recognition we would like for ourselves, but was not given to us. And this was written particularly, I think, for preachers. How we're guilty of this. We're gritting our teeth when we should be rejoicing with those over the credit they justly receive. Voss is surely right when he observes that such envy results in nursing a secret grudge or dislike against the person whose success is envied. It is sinful because it is a proud and selfish dissatisfaction with the providence of God. We want their providence to be our providence, and we ain't happy until we get it. Brethren, we agree as members of this church in our church covenant to be fully content with our own condition in life. We stand up and we say this into each other's ears in the presence of God each time we bring a new member into the church to be fully content with our own condition in life, to rejoice in the advancement of our neighbor, and to avoid envying him or coveting anything that is his. Well, brethren, do we seek the grace of God in fresh measures to live this way? Well, I have some concluding applications. I'll try to be brief. They're long, but I'll try to be short. First of all, this is the longest one. First of all, the ninth commandment in social media. Honoring our neighbor online. <clears throat> Brethren, what is the keyboard but an artificial tongue? What the ninth commandment requires and forbids in our speaking, it also requires and forbids in our writing, in our online communication. Now, the Ninth Commandment does not specifically, nor should we expect it to specifically address social media, but its timeless principles on the use of the tongue apply to how we speak in emails and on social media. That's not a realm that's excluded from the Ninth Commandment. You've likely read, or maybe even yourself, have written unkind or inflammatory statements on Facebook Things that you would never say to that person if you were talking to him face to face. Brethren, God sees what we write. His exceedingly broad law reaches down to what we write on those platforms. And the technological buffer between ourselves and others to whom we write gives us no liberty to sin with our keyboard. We are no less accountable before God than if we put our words on paper or if we spoke them to their face with our lips. Well, how do we obey the Ninth Commandment by speaking truth in love on social media? Well, consider these principles from the Word of God. <clears throat> if you're being attacked or misrepresented, show grace instead of retaliating. I mean, you know, this applies... Not just to social media, but to all of life. But it certainly applies there. First Peter 3 and verse 9. Not returning evil for evil. You know, tit for tat. They did it, I'm going to do it back. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, 
but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Proverbs 20 and verse 3. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. How many times have we proved to be the latter example rather than the former? Furthermore, keep your cool. Don't follow their foolish or hostile example. Proverbs 26, 21. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. He gets heated up. He heats you up. You both get heated up. And next thing you know, you burn the place down. Proverbs 26 and verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Don't let him take the lead. Don't follow his example. Cut it off. You can win a battle and lose the war. It's not worth it. Abandon the argument before you lose your cool. Better to quit before things heat up. Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. Have you ever seen a little kid with a big jug of water he tries to let out just a little bit? What happens? Wow, the whole thing goes over. It all gets spilled. And that's the way it is. We're drawn into an argument. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Brethren, what does it say to us? Flee temptation. An ounce of prevention is more valuable than a pound of cure. Remember, you may win an argument and yet bring shame on your name. Instead, display the gracious qualities of godly wisdom in your interactions online. James 3 and verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Brethren, we should have two goals in all our online interactions. First, we should seek the spiritual and eternal welfare of those we interact with. They have a never-dying soul. Let us be gracious to them. <clears throat> Proverbs 15.4 A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. Second, we should always remember that we are representing Jesus Christ in all our communication. Advancing His glory should be our conscientious goal. It should be our chief aim in all of our online interactions and communications. Maybe we should write above our keyboard this verse. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 That's a good overarching principle to live by. Certainly it applies here. Second, and more brief application, the ninth commandment and cancel culture. Honoring the truth in this wicked world. The Ninth Commandment does not permit us to allow our witness of Christ to be silenced by peer pressure. Popular opinion is rarely on the side of truth. You know that. Far better to stand alone on the side of truth and be hated than to be admired by 
as a darling by the woke crowd. Oh, the proponents of lies may be greater in number, but you have Jesus Christ and His truth on your side. Far greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. We must boldly and graciously speak the truth when a sinful fear of men would silence our testimony. Brethren, we honor God when we openly testify to His truth. We have the example of the three young Hebrew men when they were urged to bow down to the image, to violate the law of God, at least the first three commandments. When the face of lethal danger, Daniel 3, verses 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They just threw down the gauntlet. They said, we're not, gonna, we're not crossing over to your side. We can't do it, and we won't do it, and we might, not, we might not live, but might die for not doing it. But we're not going there. Brethren, we honor God in His law, even if we should have to give our lives to do so. The culture of death is actively trying through unholy peer pressure to squeeze us into its mold, to silence the voice of truth and righteousness, and they will stop at nothing in their attempt to silence Christians who stand against their wicked agenda. We must expect that their efforts to intimidate, to vilify, and potentially even to victimize the godly to intensify in these evil days. We must see it coming and we must not cower. And let me address one issue in particular. The Ninth Commandment does not permit us to passively promote the homosexual and transgender lie by calling confused persons by their preferred pronouns which deny their biological sex. Lies that reject the biblical teaching that God made man male and female. We think maybe we're being nice by calling a man with a woman's name. We're not being nice, we're being hurtful to them. They need to know the truth. They need to know who they are. They need to know who made them. They need to know who made them, why he made them. We can pat them with a hand of niceness all the way to hell. The Ninth Commandment does not permit us to lie in order to maintain social and cultural respectability in the name of being inoffensive. Truth is offensive. We must graciously speak offensive truth. We must not offensively speak offensive. The truth is offensive as it is. But just graciously speaking it, unless the God, 
of grace changes their hearts, it's probably going to set their jaw. And you never know, by being faithful to their soul, there might come a day in which they'll come back and thank you with tears in their eyes, with the testimony of Jesus Christ on their lips. Political correct correctness must never be allowed to trump the truth. Be sure that God will uphold us when we uphold His truth. Proverbs 29.25 The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Thirdly, more briefly, the ninth commandment and vocational responsibility, honoring integrity in the workplace. Walking with Christ in obedience to the ninth commandment requires us to be people of honesty and integrity in the workplace. God does not permit us to fudge on the truth or to cut corners to keep our jobs or to please our boss. It's the Lord Christ that we serve, Paul says. Instead, we must be people of our word, scrupulously honest, even in the little details of our work. This is where the battle is won or lost, brothers and sisters. In the little things. Even when no one else is looking, God sees us. And He will reward those whose tongues and lives bear witness to the truth. What did Jesus say? Luke 16 and verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. You see, He proves Himself in the little things. If He's faithful in the little things, He'll graduate to faithfulness in larger things. That's what Jesus says. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. The battle is won or lost right there in the little things. If we think, well, I can fudge on these little things and I'll be a man of integrity later on, you're only fooling yourself. It begins here and now with the little things. Finally, ninth commandment, and a clean conscience and a good name. Honoring God in our hearts and in our reputation. A good name is to be more desired than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. I have to cut this one a little short. But brethren, if you're, a, if you're here, if you're a Christian, you bear the name of Christ. And because you bear Christ's name, you should be concerned to honor that name by speaking the truth as it is in Jesus. Understand that we cannot bear a good name without also maintaining a blood-washed conscience. There's a direct connection between having a blood-washed conscience and a good name, or so there should be. In fact, a good name is of little value without the reinforcement of a blameless conscience. We must strive to maintain both. We must never sacrifice a good conscience in an attempt to maintain a good name. Our name is our reputation before men. Our conscience is our character before God. Listen to the Puritan Ezekiel Hopkins. He says, Indeed, a good name is so excellent a blessing that there is but one thing to be preferred before it, and that is a good conscience. When these two stand in competition, 
reputation must give place to duty. And in this case, it is far better to lose our reputation with men than our acceptance and reward with God. It oftentimes so happens through the ignorance and general corruption of mankind that what is honest and pure and just is yet not of good report amongst them. Piety is regarded, but pretense, strictness of life, a peevish hypocrisy, the cross a scandal, Christ himself a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, his doctrine heresy, and his miracles impostures. And if you light upon any such self-willed and perverse censurers, as there are too many in all ages, who think it strange, as the Apostle speaks, that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, listen to him, seek not by any base and sinful compliance to redeem their good opinion, by going their direction, but rather glory in the testimony of their railing, and account all their reviling speeches to be but so many votes for your blessedness. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, Jesus said. Brethren, one day we shall all stand before God and we shall give an account of the deeds that we've done in these bodies. Then there will be just two testimonies that will matter. It won't be this wicked world. No, it will be the verdict of our conscience, and especially in light of the verdict of God. It was with the coming resurrection and judgment day in mind that Paul testified of his present holy earnestness to maintain a blood-washed conscience before God and before men. Listen to him. Acts 24, 15-16. Having a hope in God, Paul says, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience both before God and before men. He lived before the judgment seat of God daily. And he kept his conscience void of offense. He kept short accounts with God. When he sinned, he confessed his sin. If he sinned against God, he confessed it to God. If he sinned against men, he confessed it before them and he confessed it to God. How can you put the, a price tag upon a clean conscience? You can't. It's invaluable. Because we know what it's like not to have it. And then to get it back, we don't ever want to lose it. Our tongues will take the stand on that coming day. And how we have used them in this life will be a factor deciding whether we are justified or we are condemned. What did Jesus say? Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Oh, how we need blood-washed tongues, don't we? 
how little concern we often have for how we use our tongues. But what is trifling to man is significant to God. The use of our tongues has monumental consequences, not just for time, but also for eternity. And we're reminded again that our mouth speaks that which fills our hearts. And brethren, as I close, are we not reminded this morning, reminded afresh that we stand in need of a new heart and a new tongue? And if we already have a new heart and a new tongue, we've defiled it. We need the washing of our feet, as it were, by Jesus because of our contact and defilement by the world, by our own sin. We need to walk with God with a blood-washed conscience, walk with our neighbor with a blood-washed conscience. And the only way that we can gain that is by going to the cross of Jesus Christ and appealing to Him for maybe first time and for the rest of us who are Christians, fresh cleansing from the blood of Christ. It's the only way to live happy and holy lives in Christ Jesus. We desperately need the pardoning, purifying blood of Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. He will do it. He's righteous based upon His sacrifice. He will forgive us. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe we need to spend some time even as we close this morning, taking our hearts and taking our tongues and going to God honestly through Jesus Christ and say, wash me afresh this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would hear us in this hour. How can we come to Mount Sinai and have the ninth commandment expose our sins and not need to run with the feet of faith and repentance to Mount Calvary and say again, Lord, oh God, have mercy upon me, the sinner. So Lord, take our tongues, wash them fresh in the blood of Christ. Wash our hearts in that, that cleansing fountain open for sin and uncleanness. And if there's any here this morning that their sin has been found out, oh, grant them the grace to run beyond conviction, to not just feel bad about their sin, but to take their sin to Jesus Christ, to confess it and to forsake it, and to leave even as the confessing publican did. He went to his home justified. And oh, how we pray that would be for those who are without Christ, that they might be in Christ today and those that are in Christ might be walking closer to our cleansing Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.